0: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com.
1: For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with
0: designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with graphic design guru Stephen Heller about how to
1: deliver social critiques with a punch. You have to provoke somehow. You have to either get them to say, "Oi, they or get it away from me, something to make it noticed. Here's Debbie Millman.
0: If you're the type who likes to read about the history and practice of graphic design, you'll inevitably come across a book by Stephen Heller, and you will think, this man really knows what he's talking about. Every year, there is a bevy of new books he has authored, and this year is no exception. With his frequent collaborator, Gail Anderson... He has recently published the Graphic Design Idea Book and the Typography Idea Book. He joins me now to talk about them both. Steve, it's always good to have you back on Design Matters.
1: It's always good to be here.
0: This is the 10th time you've been on Design Matters, and in preparation for today's show... I asked you what you wanted to talk about on the air. And this was several months ago when we first scheduled the date. And at the time, you thought it would be a really interesting show to go over quite a lot of the political satire of the moment. And then in the weeks preceding today, you wrote and changed your mind. You wrote me anywho the idea to do the political satire of the moment seems to be less critical at this time.
1: Because the satire has been going on for months and months and months, and it's tiresome. And uh, we know pretty much in our own minds and imaginations what's going to happen in the next couple of months leading into the, uh, into the general election, And so the general election will be more critical. Right now, there's... Uh, an overdose of what we're seeing.
0: People loathe when I talk about politics on Design Matters. I get a lot of notes about that. Well,
1: I get that from my column, The Daily Heller. Anytime I do politics, which is now at least once a week.
0: And so why, I mean, given that design is a discipline wherein you are using the idea of communicating as the central tenant of the reason for being, why would people, do you think, get so... Aghast at well, the notion of, of designers talking about the design of
1: This is not a new material. thing. This goes back to when I started writing for print years ago, that uh, people didn't want their design commentaries or design portfolios sullied by politics. That's not why they entered the profession or at least that's not why the majority or the minority seem to have gotten into it. On the other hand, part of our profession are cartoonists and illustrators, and they're quite prolific and prodigious when it comes to satire.
0: And I think that the people that lost their lives in France that all worked at Charlie Hebdo would also have issue with designers not being allowed to talk about politics.
1: Well, some politics transcends the partisan politics. Some politics becomes... Universal. I mean, I, I think a lot of people will accept that Charlie Hebdo was a terrible terrorist act that went beyond left or right. Uh, so people make a you know consolation for that. But I think when you're talking about satire that deals with the candidates and people have such strong feelings about the candidates, it's a different story.
0: Let's talk about your two new books: the typography idea book and the graphic design idea book. Why write? idea books. What was the thinking behind that?
1: Well, it wasn't much thinking at all. <laughs> I was asked to write one book, and I said, well, I'll write one if I can write two. Why? Uh, because I thought that graphic design ideas and typographic ideas dovetailed one another, in fact, complemented one another. So I thought it would be kind of fun to do a book of 50 essays each That meant I did 100 essays on historical and contemporary work.
0: So you co-authored these books with Gail Anderson. What was her role in these?
1: Well, Gail and I work equally but unequally together. I mean, she digs up all of the visual material. I do most of the writing. In this case, I dug up some of the visual material
0: and she did some of the writing. So let's talk about the typography idea book, inspiration from 50 masters. And masters they are. Just some of the designers in this book include Saul Bass, Alvin Lustig, Alan Fletcher, Paula Scher, Herb Allen. Zuzana Licko, Seymour Quast, Nicholas Troxler, Stephen Doyle, Ella Zitsky, Vim Crowell, Experimental Jetset, Milton Glaser, Neville Brody. How do you choose who to cover? How do you choose who to include in your books?
1: Well, this book is a, a kind of anomaly. First of all, the publisher asked me to do the books based on a book that was very successful for them on if you want to take beautiful photographs, read this book. So I followed the original format, but I realized I couldn't write the same kind of book. So I did these unique and distinct essays. In doing that, we found a wide range of things that would fit our needs. So we found a lot of material from young, old, known, unknown designers. And we put them all together into this big stew. And the publisher looked at what we had, and they said, we want names, So of that group, there may have been 35 names. Then we had to fill it up with
0: more names. You start the book with a very provocative introduction. You write, not every designer is a good, much less great typographer. Actually, to be a great typographer, you have to be a highly skilled graphic designer in the first place. And I want to say, really?
1: Does that sound like a paradox?
0: Well, not so much or a, a single paradox. Docs. <laughs> a single-dox. A multi-dox. I just wonder if people like Jonathan Heffler or Tobias Ferrer-Jones or Eric Speakerman or Matthew Carter are also... Who are
1: not graphic designers. Really,
0: yeah. So I, so I wonder... Uh, they have that. to
1: understand the tenets of graphic design in order to create type 4 graphic designers. So they may not practice graphic design. They may not go onto a page and make the most stunning, beautiful layouts you've ever seen in your life, but they understand how those are made and therefore in their hearts and in their minds, they are graphic designers. It's part of their DNA.
0: Now you go on to say that typography is arguably the most important component of graphic design. I was wondering why you had the word arguably in there.
1: Because there are so many components to graphic design that while I think type is the lingua franca of visual communication, other people who work with imagery, whether it's illustration or photography or collage or something other, may think that that component is the most essential part. So I think it can be argued, and I would argue they're wrong.
0: (laughs) Well, if you think about the order in which people see things, there is a very predetermined order. First and foremost, it's color, then shape, then numbers, and then if you still have somebody's attention, they'll read what you have in front of them. Well,
1: I would argue that if you're looking at a cover of the Daily news, let's say, you're looking at the screamer headline and not the photo. That's true. The screamer headline draws you in. You may even be looking at a magazine that has a caption that you go to first, and then you lift your eyes and you see the picture. So the hierarchies are really, you know, you can say there are standards for the hierarchies, but in fact, it is very situational.
0: You also go on, and this was something that I found to be really quite... Interesting, given the notion of what it means to teach, you write typography can be copied and therefore it can be taught. Mm -hmm. And so what do you think the role of copying is? And I don't mean copying as in plagiarizing, I mean in replicating. What do you think the role of replication is in teaching? Is that the the fundamental tenet of teaching?
1: Well, I wouldn't call it the fundamental tenet, but... Have you ever studied a musical instrument?
0: Only unsuccessfully.
1: Well, me too. I took piano for 10 years and I can only play chopsticks. (laughs) But I played chopsticks and that taught me how to use certain notes. I played Mozart badly,
0: but that taught me
1: how to play with certain chords. So I'm replicating, I'm copying somebody else's work by doing that. So I think generally speaking... Copying is part of the art of teaching.
0: You talk about originality in the introduction to the graphic design idea book by stating, there are many ways to make great graphic design. You must have talent. It goes without saying that talent is the ticket to success. But do not forget ambition and desire. So let's assume you have all these. Then there's the old joke. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Practice, practice, practice. So now you're ready, right? And then the answer is a bit of a resounding no. But you quote Paul Rand, being good is hard enough, don't worry about being original. Yet being good must include a modicum of originality. You add that. Why do you think that he said being good is hard enough, don't worry about being original?
1: I think Rand said it because in the world of graphic design or commercial art, uh, being original is not the quintessential virtue. Being good at something, which includes this idea of originality, but a very subvertive idea of originality is what's key. Don't go out of your way to be original because you won't be if you go out of your way to do it. It requires a lot more fusion and, and mashing up of ideas. So be good and maybe out of that goodness will come something that's innovative.
0: The last bit that I want to quote from your introduction to the graphic design idea book is this, a designer marshals existing tools to creatively communicate messages. A great designer is one whose imagination transcends the existing tools to create opportunities for innovation. I think that was my favorite two sentences of actually both books. A designer marshals existing tools to creatively communicate messages. That's what we're all supposed to do.
1: That's what we're all supposed to do. Sometimes we're not allowed to do it and sometimes we're not capable of doing it.
0: Right. Well, I think that the people that aren't allowed to do it are probably people that weren't able to communicate to whoever they were doing it for why something needed to be done. Right. So they're probably not very good at communicating their own ideas, let alone whatever idea they've been asked to communicate. Or the,
1: the ideas that they can communicate do not fit into the accepted norms. Right. You know, Raymond Lowy said that really successful design is Maya, most advanced yet acceptable if you're beyond acceptable it still could mean you're advanced it still could mean you're doing something that nobody has yet to understand
0: for whatever reason the great designer the one whose imagination transcends existing tools to create opportunities for innovation comes along once or maybe twice a generation they're they're few and far between given that you had a whole slew of names that were rejected by your publisher of work that you wanted to include. Is there anybody doing really transcendent work now that you'd like to point out? Well,
1: you know, transcendent work means it has to somehow be judged by time. You know, there there are people that are probably doing transcendent work, and I'm just not seeing it. And there are probably people who are doing great things that I think are transcendent that are not that just have hit the, the right notes in that most advanced yet acceptable category.
0: I guess one of the best examples that I could give is um, the illegibility wars of the 1980s, because you do include legibility as ideas in both the graphic design idea book and the typography. And idea illegibility book. as yes, well. Yes, yes, legibility and illegibility. And
1: there are reasons why certain things are done illegibly but they're still readable. But one thing I'd, I'd like to say is that you and I both saw the Happy film by Stefan Sagmeister. Yes. And I've seen it, as you have, in two different versions, that the final version is transcendent. Tell us why. Well, I feel that what he's managed to do is take variety of media, smash them together like smashing the atom, and he created an atom bomb.
0: What media do you think he smashes together?
1: Video, graphic design, drama, performance. All those things come together. And it's a documentary, but he does more with it than the normal documentarian.
0: It's also rather beautiful. It's a beautiful film. It's a beautifully filmed film. Right. Speaking of beautifully filmed films, Beyonce's visual album, which is another trend-setting, innovative Breakthrough. I've never seen any type of musical endeavor communicated quite in this way, other than opera. And so I, I've decided that Beyoncé's new album is an opera. Right. And well,
1: I think one word you use there, which we have to be careful about, is trend-setting. True. I don't think. That's true. Necessarily, Stefan's work is trend setting. I don't think, for example, Paul Rand's work was trend setting.
0: No, it's a bad word. You're it,
1: right. Trend setting suggests commerciality. It suggests some other agenda, and therefore, don't ever use it again.
0: Right. <laughs> no, it's it's a lazy word. It's actually a lazy word.
1: Call it glub.
0: <laughs> but it is a, a truly remarkable never-seen-before type of experience, which is also similar to Stefan's movie, very confessional in in nature, very personal, kind of brave, because you're often, in both, they're putting themselves out there in ways that they haven't been seen before, both the good, the bad, the jealous, the ugly, and the violent.
1: I think that's kind of the underlying standard for what is really great, if it's courageous, And if you can say, I would never do that, I could never do that, it couldn't be done under my roof, then there's something courageous about it.
0: Another topic that you write about in both books is the vernacular, the language of commerce. And you write, in the 1980s, graphic designer Tibor Kelman defined a genre of typography that was made up of the vernacular letters used in everyday communications, Kalman decided that graphic design, like any other language or means of communication, had its own informal dialects or vernacular forms. To illustrate this point, his studio, M & Company, would use, for example, untutored Chinese menu designs and plastic message board letters in more formal design pieces. Another separate vernacular approach, called retro, uses stylized types from the first half of the 20th century. But you caution that designers need to use this vernacular appropriately or else it will look... Anachronistic. Anachronistic. So why is that?
1: They look anachronistic because ever look at a movie that is set in the 1800s and they're using Helvetica? Mm. You know, people have to understand what typefaces they're using and why. uh, Or the idea is just shot to hell. So if you're using something that didn't exist at the time period... Uh, that you are trying to express, then it's silly. And anybody who understands type can see through it. Those people who don't understand type, I bet they have a twinge. They say something's off, you know, something's askew. Something doesn't make sense. Because something doesn't make sense.
0: You have a chapter titled Reforming, Tearing, and Sampling. And one of the examples you use is the idea of a rebus, one of the oldest graphic tropes it's a representation of a word, sometimes a puzzle. It's made up of pictures or symbols that suggest the meaning of that word. And if the frequency with which rebus has been imitated is any indication, the most familiar, indeed famous of them all, is I Heart New York, which was done by Milton Glaser in 1977. I recently interviewed Milton, and I asked him a question about that logo, and he said, please, let's not talk about that logo anymore. It's been so long since I did it. But the fact of the matter is, it is still one of the most recognizable logos in all the land, not just in New York. I heart Hawaii. I heart Afghanistan. There's I hearts everything. Did
1: you have a diary? yes a little of course girl. absolutely and how many eye hearts did you use oh it's the whole thing so i had a
0: heart over the i in my name it is
1: a totally vernacular piece it's part of the ambient language it's within our souls so the fact that it was used was just drawing from something that was so familiar to begin with and then attaching it to something that was so loved our city it couldn't help but become a great and lasting piece
0: One of the things that I find so remarkable about it is that it is a puzzle and it's a word, I, it's a symbol, the heart, and then it's an abbreviation. So we actually have to do quite a lot of neural pathing in there to be able to figure it out. And when we do, because it's a puzzle and humans love to solve puzzles, we have that moment, that probably slight dopamine hit that we get when we do something that we're proud of or that we feel good about ourselves because of, and that stays with us.
1: It's a feel-good logo, but as my father said ad nauseam, it's mind over matter, and if you don't have a mind, it doesn't matter.
0: That's true. But one of the things that you mention in the book is when using a rebus solution, it's important to make sure that while it's playful, that it's not vague. And you say that if Glazer had used anything other than the heart, red lips, for instance, the word mark would not immediately have translated as love. It wouldn't have. So if it were I lips New York, you don't think it would have worked?
1: No. The heart is something that is so ancient. And that's not... A real depiction of a heart, but that depiction of the heart is just goes back so far into histiography.
0: <laughs> Your word, that, not
1: mine. That you know, it, it's probably hardwired into us.
0: Let's talk about the graphic design idea book, another 50 masters, including Joseph Elbers, Armin Hoffman, Michael Beirut, Jessica Hisch, Louise Feely, Paul Rand, Stefan Sagmeister, Marion Banshee, Shepard Barry, Tibor Kalman, Art Chantry, Steph Geisbuehler, Paul Sayer, Christoph Nieman, and many, many more. Let's talk about one of the chapters called Obsessive eccentricity versus excess. And here you talk about hand lettering and you talk about how it is increasingly integrated into all forms of art these days because the boundaries separating applied from fine art are continually blurring. Why do we see so much of this hand lettering? Is it really because this, of this continual constant blur?
1: Well, I think part of it has to do with the computer, and we get tired of pressing keys all the time. And so it seems, on a fashion or stylistic point of view, a stylistic alternative to the computer. On the other hand, and we're talking about hands here, um, it it has a certain pleasure. I mean, look at what's happening with coloring books. The publishing industry is awash with these things. Why has that happened, Steve? Well, part of it has to do with stress reduction. People like to doodle to get some of their – it's like worry beads. So they like to doodle to get some of that stress relieved. And once you're doodling, the next step is kind of coloring things in, which is a mindless activity. But if you're given a blueprint, you know, something that's funny or something that's just totally neutral, your mind goes someplace else. You know, it's better than watching television – In some cases, it's better than going to the movies in some cases. It's a relaxant.
0: But Steve, I mean, I understand the allure of coloring books for children, especially given what we just talked about in terms of teaching through repetition. You're showing somebody how something looks and how to help develop the context of how that looks by adding to it. And you learn by doing that. What is the result for the adult using a coloring book?
1: The result is just peace, serenity. You're not being judged on your art. You're not being judged on the quality of the line that goes into those little empty spaces.
0: Do you think it's creative?
1: I think there's a certain creativity to it. I think you're relying on somebody else to give you the the template of creativity, but you could do things with it. You know, it's better than a pet rock, which you can't do anything with.
0: (laughs) I understand. It's perplexing to me. Certain things are hard for me to understand, and adult coloring books are one of them.
1: Well, there are many things for me that are hard to understand, like Donald Trump, but coloring books kind of take the pressure off of Donald Trump. (laughs)
0: Let's talk about Paula Cher. You include her in your hand-lettering chapter, and you talk about her expressive hand-lettering inspired by the primitive painter Howard Finster – started as a new approach to solving her illustration and design problems and evolved into paintings and prints that are embraced by the art world. Her rough-hewn, hand-painted lettering is the core of a conceptual series of comically skewed maps on canvas, which are tightly packed with the names of every city, province, town, river, and ocean in a particular geographical area. Paula calls these maps opinionated, biased, erroneous, and also sort of right. The details that fill the paintings are unfailingly seductive, the fruitful product of an obsessive mind. You go on to say that Paula's maps are not for real information consumers. What does that mean?
1: Well, it means if you want to take a trip from here to there, you're not going to look at Paula's maps. She's using the map uh, motif as a a playground. Her father was a map maker, so there's a certain psychological connection to what she's doing. But these things are at once a playground for her, where she can let herself loose. It's not like a coloring book by any stretch. No, it's she, the opposite. But she's working with her hands. Uh, in fact, I've watched her do hours and hours worth of of these paintings, and I wouldn't have the patience to do it for even five minutes, and she'll do it for five hours. But they're not... Wait, so you were over her shoulder
0: watching her work?
1: Yeah, I couldn't
0: find a coloring book to Tell us with. about that experience. That is remarkable.
1: You know, we'd go out for dinner, and, and before dinner, she'd be in her studio painting, letter by letter, line by line, black or colored area by black or colored area. And you look at these things, when they ended up at her show... A few months ago, and you just say, how could anybody have spent that much time doing something so obsessive? We all have our obsessions, but this one was the creme de la creme.
0: So do you have any answers why somebody does something like that?
1: Well, sometimes what's behind it is so private, you don't want to even open the door. Uh, I was just reading about Picasso's rationale for doing Guernica, and it was clear that there was a, a deep-seated revulsion of what the germans and the fascists did to this small town but with paula you know i know her father was a map maker i know that she's toyed around with primitivism both from a stylistic point of view and for the fact that it is a freeing agent so i'm not sure what makes her do the these paintings but i know that they have an honest and powerful effect
0: Paula was influenced by her father, a map maker. You write about um, sampling, design as a tasting menu, and you use Shepherd Ferry as an example, and you write, while a graphic designer can copy the great masters as a way of honing his or her craft to determine how they did what they did, it's another story altogether to steal in order to derive creative or monetary profit from someone else's intellectual property. And graphic design stealing is wrong, and copying is questionable. That said, sampling or appropriation is part of the artistic tradition. So where does sampling or appropriation turn into copying or stealing?
1: Well, if you're taking bits and pieces and you're changing, or if you're taking a picture and you're doing what is known as parody, then you're on safe ground. If you're copying verbatim and it's going out into the world as a commercial piece of art or design, then you're stealing. I don't think Shepard Fairey steals. I think he uses ambient language. And does a good job of it.
0: What do you mean by ambient language?
1: Language that's there. Visual properties that exist.
0: So why do you think that AP got so upset about the use of the photograph of Barack Obama for the Hope poster?
1: Because it was taken verbatim from a photograph. He did change it. I mean, if I was on that case, I would never have said he was guilty. I would have said he had poor judgment and she'd probably pay for the reference But people use reference all the time. It's a questionable matter of law, though.
0: I mean, he ended up giving that painting, I believe, to the White House. He wasn't selling the painting. What is the relationship between monetary gain and artistic appropriation?
1: Well, monetary gain is usually the underlying fact of or determination of how something is viewed as either plagiarism or not. I mean, if they're just doing it for themselves or they're doing it as, a, you know, a study, then it's perfectly fine. In his case, he used scrap, and it was a photographer who didn't give permission to that, use that scrap. So it gets very muddy and very technical. But, you know, there used to be days when you could take anybody's photograph and play with it.
0: Have you seen the... Recent advertising campaign for Julia louis dreyfuss yes. TV show Veep, which is appropriating the appropriator.
1: But everybody has appropriated. That's become I Love New York.
0: Exactly. And
1: incarnate. You know, everybody does it. Everybody comes up with a funny line. It's become a cliche. Sometimes it's done well. Sometimes cliches are wonderful and sometimes cliches are just shortcuts and stupidities.
0: And so when I first saw that ad campaign, I didn't quite understand it. I still don't quite understand it, and I'm wondering if there's something satirical that I'm missing.
1: If you look at the show in context, you look at the poster and painting in context, it's a big laugh.
0: Kind of an in-joke, though, if you don't know what it is you're really looking at. Everybody of a
1: it. certain age knows that poster.
0: Oh, you know the poster, but why it would be something that just doesn't look tired and overused. Well, she's tired
1: and overused. She plays somebody that's tired and overused. She's brilliant at what she does. And I thought that poster is kind of a brilliant no brainer. Because you look at it on the street. And if you don't, if you know the poster, and you don't know the show, you're going to be drawn into the show. If you don't know the poster, and you know the show, it's just, you know, a little icing on the cake.
0: Let's talk a little bit about satirical design. You have a chapter called Graphic Commentary, Social Critique Through Satirical Design. And you feature a poster of Paul Sayers that I'd actually never seen before and it's really I think one of his best um, and you write about satirical design. Historically type and image have played a huge role in sociopolitical discourse by way of commentary and critique whether commissioned by a client or self-initiated graphic commentary in the form of posters, placards, billboards, advertisements and other media serves to illuminate provoke and sometimes instigate activity for or against an issue or cause. When employing wit and irony to make a political or social statement of purpose, designers have the capacity to alter behavior or, at the very least, make people think. They also have the ability to make people mad through type and imagery that provokes negative as well as positive emotions. Provocation is as much an outcome of graphic commentary as an intention. And you show Paul Sayre's really amazing poster. I guess it was a poster that he did in opposition of some of the new New York City parking laws. And he used a parking sign and the headline is, No Breathing Anytime.
1: First, I'll say that that was one that Gail brought in that just floored me. Right. I I hadn't seen it. I hadn't either. And it's in a tradition – of using street signage for comment. And in fact, the piece before that is Steph Geisbuehler's AIDS, which is done in the manner of a stop sign. It's a pun. And uh, I think the intention and the provocation issue is that when you're making a message that has some gravitas, you want to get under people's skin. You just don't want to leave it on the surface. So you have to provoke somehow. You have to either get them to say, oi ve or get it away from me. It's something to make it noticed. And it can be done with taste sometimes, and it can be done with a lack of taste often. You know, going back again to Stefan's film, there are so many things that are in the film that have satiric notes attached to them.
0: For example?
1: Well, his title sequences. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the whole idea of a title sequence being something that you uh, are supposed to be able to read immediately, but he forces you to look for a while to figure out what's going on. I mean, that in itself is a a commentary, a parody, or a satire on the whole notion of what titles do, which is announce. So um, designers who create satire are supposed to be punching you in some fashion.
0: The last question I have for you about these two remarkable books is about conceptual design and a bit of a confession here. One of my most embarrassing Moments in a Design Matters interview is when I was first interviewing Milton Glaser. I think it was my very first interview with him. And I asked him if he thought that something that he had designed was conceptual. And he responded in his sort of very professorial manner and said, Debbie, isn't all design conceptual? And I was very embarrassed and I didn't want to push back and say, uh, no, Milton, I don't think so. I don't think all art and all design is conceptual. I think I just nodded and said, yes, of course. Sorry, bad question and, <laughs> and retreated. So, <laughs> Coward. I know. That was 11 years ago. I was a young girl then. Um, So you, you describe conceptual design as when an idea drives form. And you write, what we'll call conceptual design is where the visual idea influences the physical form it takes. In other words... The concept governs the look of the design. Designers working in the realm of ideas have a tendency to either overthink or underthink a concept when they should strike a balance between form and content. What are some of the best examples of conceptual design that you can think of?
1: That's a good question. Because there are so many, and as Donald Trump would say, there are great ones out there. <laughs> and then go on to the next question.
0: See, I think that conceptual Work is better as art than it is as design.
1: Well, I think we have to define what concept is. What I mean by conceptual is there's an idea.
0: See, I think, that's why I think Paul Sayre is a conceptual designer. His is, a He's conce- one of the his is
1: definitely a conceptual design. And uh, many designers are designers that put ideas together. Sometimes they're satiric. Sometimes they're powerful graphic commentaries. And sometimes they're just trifles. I mean, there's one that I have always loved. Fred Woodward did for Rolling Stone where he uh, has a big O in the piece and it's made out of uh, a rubber tire tube. And that's an idea. You take a tube and you make that into something else. It's also a pun. But I think that there are other things that are conceptual, where you're creating an environment that you have to think about, that it's not just what you see is what you get. It's something that has a story behind it. There's a narrative. And that goes beyond what you're looking at. And that's very conceptual.
0: That's why so many conceptual artists also seem to have some type of background in graphic design, whether it be Lawrence Weiner or Douglas Hubler, Robert Barry, people like that, that really have what seems to be a pretty remarkable command of typography.
1: Yeah, they're, they have an understanding of typography, although I would never call Lawrence Weiner a good typographer. Um, but I would call him a conceptual artist because he's gone beyond – the traditional understanding of, of art. But I would also call Picasso a conceptual artist. And I would call Paul Collin, the poster artist, a conceptual artist. And I would call Toulouse-Lautrec a conceptual really? artist in, it, some, that, in some cases. That's
0: so interesting. I would consider Toulouse-Lautrec an illustrator.
1: He's a conceptual illustrator, Christoph Nieman. The whole op-ed tradition was about <laughs> conceptual art And it drew its inspiration from data and expressionism. These are all conceptual art forms that became illustration or started out as illustration. You know, concept is something we can agree, I believe, everybody can have. It's a democratic form.
0: You are so incredibly prolific, Steve. You have a, a fairly new column on designobserver.com where we keep our show here um, called The D Word. And you also have been now for, I think, seven or eight years doing The Daily Heller, which is a daily email from print magazine. One of your recent Daily Hellers confused me. It was called The Greatest Show on Earth. And when I clicked onto the link, I was taken to a film a really wonderful film that I thought, oh, my God, Steve is now doing filmmaking. And it is 30 small films, shot one a day for a month, that all together show some of the great characters of New York City. But it wasn't you. It was just sent out by you. Who was it by?
1: It was by my son, who I lived vicariously through.
0: Can you talk a little bit about The Greatest Show on Earth? Because it is inherently a film about New York and the people that you could only ever see in New York?
1: Well, Nick is a New York kid. He's 27 now. But um, he grew up in New York. He loved New York. Even though he went out to Hollywood for a while, he couldn't stand it. And he came back, and most of his films are about New York people. His big series is called Queens of Kings, which is about drag queens in Bushwick, uh, he's, the commercials that he does for commercial jobs uh, are often New York-based. And this film series was these 30 films all about different things or people, that he, mostly people, that he sees in New York that he makes human by osmosis, sort of. Uh, he captures a certain moment in their life and in our lives, and he presents them with this, 30-second purity.
0: And it is pure and it is totally unscripted and completely authentic and completely New York City.
1: Having done a few books on New York City when I was younger, um, I can say that I adore this city. And I'm so glad that Nick has uh, taken to monumentalizing it, documenting it, celebrating it. And he'll continue to do so for a while,
0: I'm sure, if not for the rest of his life. And you do the same for the world of graphic design and beyond. I love having these conversations with you every year, Steve. It's an honor to be doing this with you. It's my honor. As always, you can keep up with what Stephen Heller is thinking and reading and writing about. You can visit his blog, The Daily Heller. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick. The show is produced exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.